we're really excited to have the head of NewsS USA, Mr. Johnny Edwards. Hey, Johnny, how's it going? Good day, Robbie. Good, thanks. Really keen to learn more about this amazing product. Before we do that, though, I'd love to find out what ignited your passion for plant-based health and veganism. It all began with a text from my dad that said, have you seen dairy is, and then expletive, scary. I went online, watched the video, and it was this video about the dairy industry. I called him and I was like, what has happened to you? And he had gone vegan at the age of 70 and he was dealing with health issues and heart stuff. And literally within a short amount of time of him going vegan, he was off medications that he was on. It sent me down this path of watching all the movies, what the health, etc. I could not get over the impact that veganism had on people's health, the planet, and particularly the animals. And that was it. There was no going back for me. If you love the sound of News S, please go check out newss.us forward slash pbn20 to get 20% off your first order. What really matters at the basis of this whole global crisis is the question, what is the impact on nature? That's what we should ask about absolutely everything. That's why the climate crisis is bad. It's bad because of the destruction that it is creating for nature. Hi, plant friends, and welcome back to the PBN podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Joining me today on the podcast is a truly fascinating individual, scientist, environmentalist, and sustainability expert, Matthew Schreiben, who specializes in climate and ecological crises and focusing on projects for the future life on Earth. As a science educator, he aims to ignite curiosity and empower people to drive positive change and combat environmental destruction. In addition to sharing his teachings online, where his videos have over 25 million views, Matthew has spoken for TEDx London and UN Ops, and has delivered keynotes from wildlife trusts and the British Portuguese Chamber of Commerce. Matthew's impressive portfolio of work centered around climate change includes numerous campaigns supported by the likes of Paul McCartney, the University of Cambridge, Friends of the Earth, and the Eden Project. In 2019, his campaign group, Planet A, organized for a thousand trees to arrive outside the UK Parliament. The action saw over 400 MPs collect trees and led to the UK's tree planting plans multiplying by a factor of 100. A notable recent highlight of Matthew's career is the launch of Aim High Earth, a platform curating transformative learning experiences for organizations and people. Aim High educates young people in particular on climate change and has a mission to activate a billion nature-first thinkers to build the future we all deserve. Matthew co-founded the platform alongside school governor Henry Waite during the pandemic. Since then, they've run sessions for the House of Lords and thousands of schools and big corporations, reaching people of all ages, ethnicities, and backgrounds. Matthew holds a first-class Oxford Masters in Chemistry and is an award-winning science communicator. He also leads his own podcast, A Piece of String. His decade-long experience as a teacher has allowed him to use his voice and platform for good, inspiring the next generation to transform the world and how we think about climate change. Today, we're sitting down to discuss more about his journey, his mission, and his recent work with Aim High Earth. Let's get to the episode. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, my friend. What a great pleasure to sit down and chat to you. Hi, Robbie. Nice to be here. Climate change. We all know about it. We all know it's worrying AF. Fusion is sort of like squeezing together two grapefruits in order to try to make a very hot melon. What is confidence? To which the highest scoring answer was, this is. Full stop, end of answer, walked out of the exam. Hi, I'm Matthew Shribman. I studied sciences at the University of Oxford, and these are my missions. One, to make science as accessible as oxygen for the broadest possible audience. Two, to ignite curiosity and inspire courageous thinking. Three, to empower individuals to drive positive change and combat environmental destruction. 
So before we talk about all your incredible achievements and all the plethora of things that you're interested in and passionate about and talk about, I'd love to hear your plant-based story. How did you discover the lifestyle and what have been some of the things that you've noticed about eating more plants? So I took quite a circuitous route into this and this isn't really the beginning of the story, but maybe I'll begin it with the point at which I um, sent a message out to loads of friends and I was like, hey guys, does anyone know a place where there's a cow that I can sit on top of? Because obviously there are there are places in the world where where cows have got used to people sitting on top of them. And you ha- when you yeah. sit on a cow, it's very important that you sit above the front legs because their yeah. backs aren't strong like like horses. And if you sit above yeah. the front legs, then they can be comfortable if they trust you. Anyway, yeah. basically, um, all of my friends said no, apart from one who said yes, I do know someone. Um, anyway, I found myself uh, out in the middle of the countryside uh, with this farmer uh, whose cows had never been ridden but he wanted to see a city boy like sit on top of a cow and get thrown off he was quite a sadistic farmer he was then amazed when three hours later I came back from having been massaging the cow and like scratching it and gaining its trust and I I grew up around cows so I I know cows quite well and and then I and then I sat on top of it and we got like a short clip for a video that I used for a campaign called no beef and anyway, the farmer was totally amazed. He thought the ambulances were going to be Cow whisperer. The video uh, made this, yeah, this campaign called No Beef, which I ran several years ago now. And the aim was to paint the picture for people of how bad beef is in particular, and also lamb, and make it really clear and really undeniable for people. And I remember at the time, I got quite a lot of pushback from people who were kind of in the vegan space in terms of organizations because they were saying, well, you're going to be like pushing people towards chicken and pork and things like that. And I was absolutely convinced at the time that that wouldn't be the case and that actually it would be the first step for people to take and an easy step for people to take on a journey towards becoming less dependent on animal products. I mean, we know that we should drive less, but we need to get to places. And we know that we should heat our houses less, but what about when it's chiller? Turns out that one of the single most effective things that individuals can do is also one of the easiest. Just stop eating beef and lamb, but mainly beef. You can cut your impact by a full 95% by eating proteins from delicious plants. Don't be fooled into thinking that plants aren't full of proteins. They're hiding loads. On average, we each get about 85% of the protein we need from plants. And then we get about 50% of the protein we need from animals. So that's a lot more protein than we need. We can maybe cut our beef entirely, and we'd still have plenty. Since running it, the, the, the video, the main video had over a million views. And since running it, the number of people who've come to me years later and said, that was the first thing for me that took mm-hmm. me on the journey to becoming plant-based. But the funny thing was that it was also one of the first steps for me, because I also needed that first easy thing that I could do where I could own it and it could become part of my emotional makeup where I knew that I was doing this positive thing by avoiding beef and lamb. And then that grew into a much more plant-based life because it's it's so difficult to, to get people to change when um, emotionally it's something that people have grown up with. It's so normalized to, to eat animal mm. products. And so my strong belief is that you need those kind of like initial steps. It takes an enormous amount of water to create a steak, from the water the cow drinks and sweats, to the water needed to grow the plants that it eats, and all of the industrial water surrounding that as well. A single gram of steak sets the world back a full 16 liters of water. You can cut your water impact by about 60% by choosing other meats, but why eat other meats when you can cut your water impacts by over 85% by eating plant proteins instead? Do you know that thing about how we've recently discovered the microbiome in the gut, the, the bacteria in the gut have this 
ability to convince us to eat certain things. So, you know, if we eat loads of sugar, then we'll get loads of ones that like sugar. And then mm-hmm. they'll send messages to our brain saying, eat more sugar. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I'll eat more sugar. But like, if you, if you train yourself to just, or you train those bacteria in your microbiome to, to love plants, then you just start craving them. And in a way that I, I never foresaw, I now just can't see it any other way because that I, I feel so much healthier in myself. And I know this is something that's been covered time and time again about how much healthier we all become when we switch to more plant-based diets. But yeah, it's something that now the, the, the living things inside me are, are crying out for, for Brussels sprouts, which I never really expected. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And I think a lot of people don't realize about the wonderful world that goes on inside our gut and our microbiome. Um, there's a great podcast on the PBM podcast with Dr. Will Bolshevitz, um, The Wonders of the Gut, and he goes into a lot of detail about this. But I love what you, you mentioned there about how the gut can sort of, in a way, manipulate us. We don't realize that there's this inner world living within us uh, with billions and trillions of, they're not really individuals because they're not really technically sentient, but they are um, living creatures, you could say, living living kind of entities with sort of inner worlds and inner lives. And I often think that, I often think when I go into the supermarket that I want to reach for those, those chocolate bars or those sweets, like, is there something inside me a bit like that zombie? And, I, and we're going to talk about ants because you love ants, I love ants, and I'm super excited to hear all your thoughts about them as creatures. But there's this, there's this fungus that grows inside ants, as I'm sure you know that takes over their brains and makes them climb up to a top of a tree and jump off the tree not jump off the tree but die at the top of the tree right to spread the fungus and i often think that are there bacteria that live inside us that are doing similar things and are actually manipulating us and controlling us and making us do making us take bad food choices essentially a hundred percent there are toxoplasma gondii toxoplasmosis yeah cats do you know about okay so you know about this it's it's a czech study and I'm not sure uh, how much credence it's given overall in the scientific community, but this idea that humans who have it are more likely to take risks as well. Have you heard this? I have, yeah. And, and, and it's one of the reasons why many humans are obsessed with cats and want to just touch them and be so close to them because of the toxoplasmosis parasite causes rats to not be afraid of cats. And so they end up like being more susceptible to being caught. <laughs> it's almost like this is part of the cat's grand plan. It is, isn't it? Uh, this is part of their absolutely. initial technology that they developed before humans were even around. Are you a cat or a dog person? Dogs, 100%. Oh, okay. I don't think we can be friends, okay. I'm afraid. <laughs> well, we can enjoy no, this fine. final hour with one another. It's all good. Yeah, no, I love all animals. I'm just kidding. Going back to sort of food and the benefits of food, you're an environmentalist and you know, you're know you an educator. And one of the things you touched on in the beginning of the conversation is about how difficult it is to get people to change. People love to hear good things about their bad habits, right? And when we look out in the world, we look at billboards and TV ads and radio ads and everywhere we go, people are pushing animal foods on us we know with absolute certainty now that animal agriculture is the leading one of the leading drivers for climate breakdown greenhouse gas emissions species extinction ocean dead zones river acidification the the list is as long as my arm right but there's a real challenge with trying to educate people because environmentalism traditionally has been very boring very bland and dry and it's been very hard to get people to even pay attention to any of it but things seem to be changing Uh, with platforms like yours aim high things seem to be changing but Firstly, what does it mean to be an environmentalist and how can we, in your opinion, educate people in a way that the information sticks? So before I answer that, I just wanted to firstly say you referred to all these all these things to do with nature. And then you were talking about how those things are, are causing the, the climate crisis as we, as we degrade nature. One of the things that 
I've been working really hard to do, and so have my team, is, is helping to reframe the climate crisis as actually a subsection of the overall nature crisis. Because I, that, that to me seems like the big thing, the big piece that people are missing. And I think we're missing a massive trick in not dressing this all up as a, as a nature-based conversation, because we already know on TV, people love watching nature documentaries, and yet people aren't, aren't so likely to engage with something that's purely focused on the climate. Um, right. And the whole story is a, is a nature story. You know, we talk about the climate crisis conversation gets very stuck with talking about degrees of, of temperature change and PPM of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it's actually very, very abstract. And what mm. really matters is one, will we turn off the taps of burning fossil fuels soon enough? And two, will nature be sufficiently intact in order to undo the damage that's that's been caused? And ultimately, th- those are the only two things. And so, and so I think we need to start to help to make the nature conversation the overall conversation. Your first question was, what does it mean to be an environmentalist? I mean, I think that it's such a broad question. It's one of those questions that probably, if you tried to frame this for someone who is like an, an indigenous person who hasn't had a huge amount of contact with the outside world, they'd think, what does that even mean? Because ultimately, <laughs> their, their whole world is is environmentalism. Like the mm. I was speaking to Nick, Nick, Nick Mulvey, and he, he was talking about how the environment is something that is very easy for us to frame as being separate to ourselves. But actually, the environment is just something that we belong to. We are the environment. We are a part yeah. part of the overall whole, and so that's why I think if you, yeah, there there is definitely people in the world who are much more connected with the reality, like our evolutionary reality. Who, if they heard that question, they think, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. And so for mm. me, an environmentalist is kind of like a feminist in some ways, in that everyone should be a feminist because it's someone yeah. who who believes in the power of of, of women. Um, an environmentalist is, is someone who believes in the importance of considering the whole of the living planet that we are a fundamental part of. So- I love it. I think that's fantastic and, and a great answer, I think. And I also want to go back to what you said about nature crisis, and that's brilliant. Uh, I'm really going to pick your brain more about that and how we can integrate more of that language into PBN, because at the end of the day, you know, education is something that needs to be effective. It's not always you know, about being right. It's about being effective. And that's my philosophy. We have to work with people's psychology to get through to them, get the message through. And if we can frame the conversation in ways ways in which it awakens people's compassion or people's emotion towards this crisis, you know, I feel like we'll make a bit more, bit more of a, a dent in the problem. Uh, as far as our environmentalism goes, I love the, the comparison between feminism. You know, we all live on planet Earth. We live in an environment. We are the environment, as you say. You know, Carl Sagan said we are the, the universe made self-aware, right? We are the actual universe. We see ourselves as like separate from everything, but we are actually part of this world but humans i think have, have over the centuries sort of separated themselves you know maybe psychologically environmentally from the environment when it comes to sort of environmentalism though i mean obviously there's feminism there's social justice there is a lot of pushback and there's a lot of people sort of what seems like on the sort of conservative right, especially in America and the sort of Western world, that are push against environmentalism. Environmentalism seems to be this sort of thing of left-wing liberal crybabies, you know, that we are, you know, us liberals, you know, we're just trying to enforce our views on conservatives with our tree-hugging, bunny-hugging, as are the words of, I think, is it um, Boris Johnson <laughs> talking about bunny-huggers? How do we get past that? Because ultimately we all live on planet Earth, whether we are liberals or conservatives, left or right, you know, how do we move past this and get into those conversations and break down that 
barrier. Words get freighted with so much meaning. And I think that part of being a great communicator and for us all becoming better communicators ourselves is, is learning what, what words to avoid. And things like left-wing and right-wing, mm. they're so heavy with, with different kinds of meaning for people and completely different <laughs> kinds of meaning depending on, on where you might see yourself on, on the political... I, I don't like to call it spectrum because that feels two-dimensional. Yeah. I like to think of it as a multi-dimensional thing. But yes... We, I, th- I, th- I think we need to um, l- learn, learn which words to avoid so that, we can, so that we can communicate in ways that are really effective. And for example, stuff that we should focus on is, is fairness. Um, we should focus on fairness. We should focus on the ability to be alive <laughs> in a hundred years time. Uh, the ability for our, for our children to, to live lives of similarly good quality to, to what we've been able to have. Um, these are simple things that everyone agrees on. But we all know that the word vegan is a very polarizing word. And it's such a shame because it is such a beautiful thing. But we mm. never use the word vegan at all when we're mm. approaching people who are in a broad spectrum audience. We always talk about plant-based or moving away from animal products. Sure, yeah. when we get people more involved in that conversation, then we start to use those words, but we know which kinds of words are really polarizing. And so we tend to avoid mm. them because ultimately what matters is not that you're convincing someone that the word vegan is good. What matters is that you're convincing someone that the principles behind the word are good. Choosing our words skillfully so that we don't trigger emotional defense mechanisms in others, right? That is the key to effective communication. Uh, and, and, it, and it's an art form. It's something that we have to develop and use over time. We have to learn and study it. I think that the conversation that we have about environmentalism or veganism, you know, it's very time sensitive, isn't it? That if we don't start having these conversations in a more, I don't want to say pushy way, because obviously when you push people, what happens? They push back and they obviously often go in the opposite direction. But how do you feel about that? How do you feel that? Do you feel that sense of like urgency and that people, it's very hard to get people to listen, whether it's the diet or whether it's the environment, whether it's animal rights or whatever. I personally feel a huge sense of urgency, but I really feel frustrated by the lack of forward movement because we have to be so careful about how we talk and what we say do you ever feel that sense of frustration? Of course. I mean, it's one of the great drivers. I mean, this was the, the thing about Don't Look Up is that it was um, the, the DiCaprio film, which I'm sure many listeners will might have seen by now. It shows us very clearly that even from the perspective of the world's mega celebrities like Leonardo, that the problem looks the same even from their perspective. We, we can't get the information through to the people who, who need to have the right kind of information. The world is not running on the basis of truth and fairness. It's running on the basis of, of egos instead. And that's why, for me, one of the biggest things that we have to change is, is our landscape of role models. MIT um, did a study um, relatively recently where they looked at um, the distribution of role models through the last few thousands of years. And they showed that if you, if you wind the clock back a couple hundred years, then most of the role models in society were thinkers, people like scientists and philosophers and, and writers and, and so on. There was a big chunk of politicians as well, as there always is. But ultimately, it was, it was these kind of like academic minds. Now, don't get me wrong, there have been enormous improvements as we've moved forwards over the past couple of hundred years in other ways in terms of diversity and, and different voices coming through. And that's a very positive thing. But at the same time, you look at the landscape of role models now, and it's almost entirely sports people. Otherwise, it's almost entirely celebrities. 
singers and and film stars and so on. And this is and this is not at all to say that there aren't good role models among celebrities because there definitely are some really great and really important ones. But imagine explaining to an alien who arrives from outer space, like who who are the famous people? Who are the people who you look up to? And we'd be like, okay, well, there are the people who pretend to be other people. And there are the people who kick a ball around a field. <laughs> and they're like, okay, but what about the people who are like progressing society? What about the people who are, and it's not to say that these things aren't art forms as well, but the r- landscape of role models is very strange at the moment. Mm. And I think it's a good thing for us to do to step back from that and realize that we are actually living in a time that is, I don't want to say like a, a dark age because it's, it's not, but it's like the opposite of a Renaissance in some ways. Because, you know, old people are always saying it wasn't like that in my day. They're right. And every generation at the moment, in some ways, there's an element of moving away from scientific and think and thinker role models. And as the world improves, and I like to think that it improves, even though there's an awful lot going wrong at the moment, I feel like it happens in an oscillatory way. So it's like a bit of an improvement and then it gets worse and then a bit of an improvement. But each time it gets better and better, it's possibly reasonable to think that we're on a bit of a dip at the moment with that. And that's why one of the most important things that we all have to do as communicators is help to link up the pieces of the puzzle, work with the people who are the role models, rather than getting really upset and annoyed about it. Let's be like, okay, great. Well, there are, there are really good role models among these famous people. So let's let's work with them to get, get the important messages out. Uh, absolutely. I think that's, that's a great point. And I love that you brought up Don't Look Up. This is not real. This is not real. This is not real. This isn't happening. Kate, uh, tell me this isn't really happening. I hear there's uh, something you don't like the looks of. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you gotta digest it. That's the assessment period. For me, the importance of filmmaking and art in this in this sort of nature crisis is really important and valid because how do we get through to people today? You know, and you mentioned the celebrities, the sports people. Um, and this is where, you know, brands and platforms that want to further the message, whether it's the environmental message or the animal rights message or the health message, we have to work with the famous people of the time. And plant-based news gets criticized all the time for the amount of celebrity news that we co- that we cover. But it's what people want to read and it's what people want to see. And we do try to make them meaningful. We don't want people to feel that we're covering celebrity stories just for the sake of it. Anyone can see scrolling down the BBC feed, but it's the same thing. Like, like half of the stories on the BBC front page, if you come on, go on, on your phone at the moment, are about celebrities, which seems quite bizarre. Kim Kardashian, she's got like... I don't know, 100 million followers or something insane like that. You know, she's messaged us on Instagram and talked about how she's being more plant-based than ever and she loves the diet and she's really happy about it and she feels amazing and her sisters are all being, you know, vegan in their diet for quite a long time now and they're all talking about the importance of it for because of the climate. But because of the fact that they're celebrities, we get this polarizing behavior of the audience of like very aggressive and, and can be quite demeaning towards them, particularly being women as well. And then there's obviously on the other side, people saying, good for them. They are speaking to millions of people 
advocating a plant-based diet, you know, if Kim Kardashian can can talk about plant-based diets and eat a plant-based diet, why couldn't I? It must be, you know, it must be something that I'd like to do because obviously celebrities often speak and then the people follow, don't they? <laughs> this is the challenge. But talking about the film Don't Look Up, and I loved the film. I was very moved by it. You know, it's, it's had a very polarizing opinions across the board from people. But I'd love to hear about what you thought of it as a sort of allegory for the climate slash nature crisis. It's a, you know, it, it, it sort of tells that story. And there's lots of sort of similes there of people like Donald Trump and all these sort of political characters. But did you enjoy the film? And what are your thoughts about how it was in a way kind of echoing the times that we're living in now? Okay, so I'll, I'll answer that, but I just really quickly want to add one more small thing on the on the on influencers and, and famous people, which is just to yeah. say that most of these people are really nice people who have been co-opted into a system that is um, inherently trying to get them to be a part of encouraging people to buy stuff that they don't yeah. need, and it's not not their fault. And I, I see why people react so negatively when when they become front and center of things. But I just want to say that I re I really salute people like Kim Kardashian when when they're coming out and supporting these movements because it can't be easy considering the kind of pressure that they might be under with the different elements of their work and the way that they're expected to be as as a famous per person within the current global system that we have that's based entirely on consumerism. And so in that sense, I, I think we can do a huge amount by helping to show celebrities what an amazingly positive thing they can do, because I don't think a lot of them realize how powerful they are, how much of a positive impact they could have on the planet, and how many people there are like me and my team and other people equivalent to us, where we know we've got the right kinds of ideas and how to communicate them in order to change people's minds, but we just don't have the platform. And so mm -hmm. by, by linking everyone together, I think we can make a huge positive difference. Anyway, so yeah, I kind of enjoyed it, but I also found it really terrifying. This is the worst news in the history of humanity. He just blew us off. What are we gonna do? We have to release the information. So we just leak it. Guests today have made a pretty big discovery in space. How big is this thing going? I can't destroy my ex-wife's house. Is that possible? <laughs> There's a 100% chance that we're all going to die. Okay. Okay. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm, not so not much. So much. We're gonna get the news out there, one way or another. It's real and it's coming. Jesus Christ, you could have just called me. This comet contains $30 trillion worth of material. What do trillions of dollars matter if we're all gonna die? Oh, oh no, this what is if we're rich? That would be terrible. You guys discovered a comet? I have a tattoo of a shooting star on my back. Oh, that's, that's terrific. I, I, I thought it was an excellent film. I thought it was a really, really good portrayal of the reality. Um, I think I found all, all the right kinds of things about it really frustrating because it is a very clear depiction of, of how, things, how things are. One of the things that cut deep the most for, for me was kind of looking at the way that the scientists, when they were on the news programs, were communicating these things. Because mm -hmm. in a world where science is accelerating faster than ever before, the role of science communicators in the world is still hugely undervalued. If they'd had professional science communicators in those positions on the news shows instead of the scientists themselves, and science communicators who are also scientists, I'm not saying that these people are outside of the, the world of science, but people who know how to communicate, it would have gone very differently because they would have known how to take people on that emotional 
journey. And so those moments when they were they were shouting into the camera, obviously it's important when emotion is shown, those things can be very effective as well. But also you can see how they're like pushed around by the news anchors. But equally, we're in an insane situation. And I think that the film is perfect in showing people that it's not going to get better unless there's some radical change on the horizon ahead. And speaking of radical change, obviously there's a number of solutions across the board which people in in various ways have been trying to use to to sort of stem the the particularly the climate crisis with regards greenhouse gas emissions and carbon. You mentioned some topics that you yet you wanted to discuss regarding kind of carbon offsetting, carbon capture. For me, there's a real kind of like mix of emotion when it comes to all these different things, because sometimes I feel like some of these tools are just a band-aid solution. They're not really dealing with the root cause of the problem, which is the way we live and our lifestyles. You know, I've seen these machines being built in, in Iceland, these carbon capture devices that sort of suck carbon out of the atmosphere. I understand the science of it, and it's it, you know in a simple form, but I am really confused as to why these kind of technologies are being built at all. Why are we not addressing the problem like planting more trees, growing more forests? You know, why are governments not advocating for reduction in meat consumption? You know, reducing animal agriculture. These are all these hard and fast ways in which we can dramatically reduce our emissions. But then it seems like most of the world seems to be just focused on offsetting and carbon capture. So do these things work? You know, is there any validity to any of these solutions? And should we be talking about them more? One of the things that people are starting to, to wake up to now are some of the legal structures that exist that make it very difficult for governments to move. And so we're starting to see that there are these things like energy treaties, wherein the UK government can pull out of agreements where energy companies are, are going to drill for oil. But if they do so, then they'll have to pay the energy company for the amount of profit that they would have got if they were allowed to do it. And so we have all these crazy treaties going on that are part of the makeup of what makes it difficult for positive changes to happen. And that's just like one example of the systemic problems at the top that are incredibly difficult to change without a huge amount of very visible support. This is why I thought one of the biggest at COP26, every day going in, I expected to see loads of protesters on the outside. I expected to see a lot of police as well, but I expected to see loads of protesters because I I thought quite naively that the government would think, right, well, we want to make some progress with this COP, so we better make it look like the people of the world want this to happen. And so let's let a decent number of protesters in. But they didn't let any in, which was crazy. And I think a major part of why that COP was not um, at all successful. It was very, very difficult for protesters to get near to the front. I didn't know that. Um, I didn't realize that it was so heavily controlled. I was, I've never seen so many police in my life. It was unreal. Wow. But yeah, so, so I think there's, there's many political problems which will only be solved by a reasonable amount of, of activism. And when I say reasonable amount of activism, that's, that's going to be direct action and, and nonviolent um, interventions because that, that's, that's what's going to work. As we know in, in the UK, there's like major draconian policies being pushed through government at the moment that will make protests very, very difficult and turn us into much more of a police state, which is a terrifying thing. But anyway, I think that people actually need to remember that whilst it's important to support the right kinds of stories on social media, social media itself is not the way that we really, really drive things forward is by, it's by being active on the, in the kind of movements that are pushing these things forward. Are any of these technologies actually effective or could we be really focusing more on animal agriculture and, and sort of transportation? 
So a quick tour um, of things. So one idea is to put a load of um, catamarans in the Arctic that spray up salt water into a fine mist to make salty clouds, so extra white clouds, that then reflect the heat of the sun. In theory, yes, would reduce the heating of the planet, but it's a short-term solution. You're not actually removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. A similar thing is you can cover the Arctic in glass beads to reflect sunlight. And again, it's something that people are talking about because people are worried about getting into serious extremes. But again, the big question that we all need to answer is what is the impact on nature? No one has any idea what the impact on nature will be of these things. Now, a good Mm. window into that is that another solution that was being bandied about by um, the Centre for Climate Repair by Sir David King in in the UK was that we fertilize large sections of the ocean with iron powder. So we fill it with iron powder and that stimulates loads of growth of algae and the algae are plants. So the plants then pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Great, we're storing carbon dioxide, it goes into the ocean, problem solved. No, it doesn't work. We now know for sure that this idea actually releases more greenhouse gases than it stores because it causes so much chaos to nature. So this is our first window into how all of these like big solutions that we've been coming up with are probably not going to work because they are not properly taking nature into account. There are a few nice solutions that do take nature into account that are starting to catch on in different places in the world, like China is introducing sponge cities where they just have more, it's basically just more green areas in the cities that can absorb water and fill underground aquifers. Seems pretty basic if you think about how a city should be run instead of it just being pure tarmac. But anyway, at least it actually thinks about nature as as an idea. But for the most part, a lot of our solutions aren't working because they are not, not thinking of the nature element. But then you asked about um, offsets and carbon capture and storage. One of the key things that I would love to help people to understand is the difference between slow cycling carbon and fast cycling carbon. And so because obviously, on the timescale of our lifetimes, trees are absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it. Trees are also dying as well as all the other living things that store all of the carbon. You know, we, we always think of trees as being the store of carbon, but actually it's nature as a whole. Forests that are just artificially planted with one single kind of tree repeated over and over again actually hardly store any carbon at all. What really stores carbon is a thriving, healthy ecosystem that's interdependent on itself and generally is very, very old, which is why when people ask me, what carbon offsets should I buy? I always tell them, don't buy carbon offsets, support existing rainforest and old growth ecosystems and so on. These fast cycling carbon mechanisms are when are on the timescale of our lifetime when the CO2 comes out of the air into the tree or the other living thing that dies and then it goes back into the atmosphere. In contrast, when we extract fossil fuels from underground, we're taking carbon that has been underground for millions of years and if it weren't for us would be underground for millions of years more and we're pulling it up to the surface and then we're burning it. And the system at the surface is like, whoa, I don't know what to do with this. I've already got enough carbon up here in the atmosphere and in all the living things, you can't actually ever make up for burning fossil fuels by restoring nature, really, in the short term, because nature already has its own carbon cycling around. And so that's why I think that it's it's a major fallacy that people are being told that they can offset any kind of burning of fossil fuels. And this is what Greta's talking about when she refers to creative accounting of mm. carbon, where she says that people are just kind of balancing things with things that don't actually work. And this is why 
We should have been taught this in school because it's not that complicated, really. But it's something that so few people know that we're all very vulnerable to this idea of thinking, oh, well, it's okay. They're going to keep burning fossil fuels, but they'll also keep planting trees. So, so it'll be okay. Now, obviously, nature will handle it eventually, but it will take a long time for nature to actually absorb all of the carbon dioxide that we've emitted from fossil fuels, which is why the, the main solution is turn off the fossil fuels and start start repairing nature. You know, these are all sort of possible solutions. But again, I go back to my point about Band-Aid solutions. Uh, are you familiar with Joseph Poor and the University of Oxford study about plant-based diets? I've got a terrible memory for names, so I might have read the study, but... Yeah, so his study at, uni- at Oxford University said that when individuals switch to a plant-based diet, they can reduce their carbon footprint by up to 73%. And if everyone stopped eating these foods, they found global farmland could be reduced by 75%. Now, if we obviously know that if people switch, more people, especially the Western world, switch to a more plant-focused diet, and we can free up more farmland and plant more trees, obviously, as you say, it'll take time to rewild. Um, everyone's talking about rewilding. And as you say, it's not just a silver bullet. You can't just plant like a monocrop of just one type of tree and then things magically repair themselves. It requires a strategic approach to bringing that forest back to life, really, to its sort of premium premium rainforest, you could maybe call it. You know, Joseph Paul, obviously, you know, his study, which has been one of the many backbones of what we do at Plant-Based News, because our focus is to advocate and educate people on the power of a plant-based diet, not just for health, but also the environmental impact of it. This is not just Joseph Paul. You know, this type of stuff has been talked about for, for decades, but it doesn't seem to be getting through to people. And again, we talk about, back about like, behavior change, it's very hard to get people to change their behavior. I personally find it very frustrating that we have a solution to dramatically reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and our personal carbon footprint, but it's not happening. You know, can you, you know, regarding kind of this way of life, because obviously you have started eating more plants yourself, you obviously are very passionate about it as well. You know the facts. People out there who are obviously advocating for this lifestyle, have you got any suggestions or ways in which we can educate? Because you're an educator. I've seen your TED Talks. You're great. You know, what kind of ways can we sort of cut through? And we talked a bit about it before, but what are some of the tricks? You mentioned language and choosing the words correctly. But are there any tricks in which we can talk about these solutions in ways that are effective rather than sort of just coming across as evangelical or angry? Because I think a lot of people are very angry. The nature story is one that we all need to work on trying to tell in a better way. And Mm -hmm. it's hard. The material that we have to help people to understand the nature story and why they should shift their diets is the most carefully constructed of all the bits of material. It's also the bit that changes people's behavior the most radically. We find that something like 92 or 93% of people who go through our courses are reducing their intake of animal products several months down the line. And it's, and it's because it's been really carefully constructed. But it, it's, it's, hard. it's hard to tell the story within the frame that we've been forced into. I know about the numbers about freeing up farmland. And that is something that we should be focusing on more than the idea of a reduction in carbon footprint. Um, well, I say that. I think we have to balance things because obviously there's there's major coverage of things that reduce carbon footprint. And those are the boxes that a lot of politicians have to tick. And so we need to recognize that that's something we need to communicate on the basis of when we're talking to people in power, because that's that's what they're going to listen to. But at the same time, in terms of actually reaching large numbers of people, people aren't necessarily empowered by the idea that their carbon footprint will be reduced by 
X amount because they know that there are all these companies all over the world that emit their entire lifetime of emissions in a, in a few seconds. It's much more important that we help to empower people by showing that they are part of a movement. They're a node in, an, in, an, in a whole network um, of people who are all changing their behaviors and they're helping to define a new kind of normal. And in that sense, they're, they're a key part of a movement by, by making these positive changes. I think that the main story we need to help people to understand is that the entire world is alive and that we are a small part of this life. And the life is far more precariously balanced than we like to think it is. What we really need to do is protect the nature on which we depend. It doesn't take a genius to see that now that we're at a point where if you put all of the world's land mammals in a pile, then you, you, you weighed it all up. How much of the weight do you reckon would be all of the, the wild mammals? So all of the, the lions and, and tigers. And in fact, no, let, let's do this for all mammals on Earth. So including mammals in the sea. So all mammals on Earth, if you put them in a pile, how much of that weight do you reckon would be wild? I know that it's 4% of the total biomass, but I don't know what the total biomass weighs. <laughs> no, 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 you're, no, exactly, no, exactly. Yeah, 4%. 4 so so it's, it's, such, it's such a tiny amount that remains of wild nature. It doesn't take a genius to see that it's Time on its last out. legs. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's the story that people much prefer to belong to when they mm. see themselves as part of a natural living system. It's the story, and the other thing that we really need to focus on is the story of health. And I, and I can see that that's something that has been becoming increasingly effective, but it's been known for a very long time that people are a lot more receptive to the personal health message than they are to saving the, the entire planet. And then the final one is cost. That seems to be the main, one of the main weapons that's used against people moving more towards a plant-based diet is the idea that it costs a lot more to be, to be plant-based. It may be true in certain places, but in a lot of places it isn't necessarily true. And even if it is true, then it's often because there's major subsidies being given to animal farming to reduce the prices of, of those, those products. In terms of cost, it's difficult to get people to see that if it's really cheap financially to us, then the real cost is that it's costing the earth. Because sometimes it can be hard for people to, to think on that larger scale. But if we can help people to see that it's healthier and that actually it will cost them less in the long run, then I think that that is a very powerful message. Let's move on to, to Aim High, your, your co, the co-founded organization that you created. It's a fantastic kind of testament to the way you are as an educator, you know, I discovered you guys um, a few months ago and was in, you know, as a designer and a creative, I was immediately drawn in by the colorful cornucopia of content that I could find there. And I loved all the illustrations and the way everything was sort of broken down in a really beautiful way. How do we take all this very abstract data, sciencey stuff, which puts off a lot of people. Most people are totally, they kind of, their eyes glaze over when you start talking about, you know, parts per million and carbon and this and that. People just switch off. So we have to dress things up in a way that gets through to people. And you've really done that with Aim High. You know, I just really love the way everything is laid out. But first of all, tell us about where the idea came from. Where is it today? You talk about reaching beyond the echo chamber, which I love. How do you, how do you see it sort of growing in its future? But yeah, tell us about its history. First, we kind of imagine a world where people seek knowledge instead of assets and, and fame. Imagine how much more superior we would be if we actually got there. That's our kind of core idea is that we, 
want to elevate the collective knowledge of our our species. That sounds very, very dry in some ways. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you about flying spiders. Back in the day when uh, Darwin was um, on the Beagle going around the south coast of America, he realized that there were loads of spiders boarding the boat. And he was, he was quite far off the coast. So he was like, hang on a minute, how are these, how are these spiders getting, getting on the boat? And so this idea was born that they were doing something called ballooning, where they used their threads to create a kind of parachute shape. And that, that then allowed them to be carried on the wind across the ocean. And it sounds legit, but then if you start thinking about it, well, actually, there's the winds could just as easily push them down into the ocean as it could kind of carry, carry them up. So actually, it starts to maybe that isn't something that's that's going to work. Anyway, quite recently, we discovered that it works in a completely different way. Uh, so a lot of spiders have these kind of like electrically sensitive hairs on their legs. And when they feel that the electric field of the world is getting strong enough, they'll climb up really high. And then you know how the ground's a bit negative and the, and the sky's mm-hmm. a bit positive. So they'll climb up really high and then they'll fire a single thread out of their abdomens. And as they do so, they'll cover it in electrons. They'll make it all negatively charged. And then wow. they'll literally repel the ground and attract the sky and then they'll float. And then they can float for hundreds or even thousands of miles along. Now, imagine if we had all learned about static electricity in this way at school rather than rubbing two pieces of plastic together. Like you can't get more artificial than, than the way that we, that we learned it in school. And viewing the world through this kind of nature lens, as I was talking about before, is immensely powerful, not just in terms of sparking imagination and provoking really deep learning, but in terms of how effectively it can change the way we see the world and our place within it. We got to this point where we were thinking, you know, of of all the times in history, we, we need people to be learning and wanting to learn, people of all ages and backgrounds. And it's only through education that we can truly advance our society morally, intelligently and, and equitably. And you've probably heard H.G. Wells saying those words, that civilization is in a constant race between education and catastrophe. And, and education is, is really losing at the moment. And there's no place where the global education system is failing us more um, for people of all ages than climate and nature. Um, nowhere is the gulf between what we know and what we need to know such an enormous abyss. And it's an abyss that has got wider in some ways. And so delivering effective, relatable climate education to hundreds of millions of human beings would change the course of history. And so this is what we are working on doing. And so at Aim High, our work is really predicated on the notion that one of the biggest problems we're fighting against is that facts alone don't change people's behavior. And that's you know what, what we saw in Don't Look Up. People tended to, the scientists, when they got on the news, tended to focus on the facts. But instead, behavior change happens because of the right context and the right emotions and the right stories. And so we curate transformative learning experiences by bringing together all of these pieces like the science, the behavioral psychology, the communication, the impactful design and so on. And in many ways, we, we kind of create Pixar's of climate and nature because this is something that needs to be known by everyone. And so we give people like the, the knowledge and the solutions and the ideas, but most of all, we, we really humanize it and we make it meaningful and relevant for people. And then we show people how to teach it as well so that we can get that multiplicative that we need. But what, what we're doing at the moment is very much built to scale. So, so far, our climate and nature sessions have run to hundreds of thousands of people in about 150 countries now. And, we, and we're quite good at holding people's attention with the way that the story is told. And so we find that about 95% of people will, will stick through the whole thing. By bringing together all these pieces, it means that, as I was alluding to earlier, we 
managed to really change people's behaviors. And we managed to really shift paradigms in the way that people think. And so we have, as I said, 93% of non-vegans reducing their intake of animal products, 97% of attendees reduce their plastic purchasing when we track them several months down the line and similar stats for transport and voting preferences and, and stuff like that. And it's these stats aren't as a consequence of us like hammering those specific individual solutions to the crisis. It's just that we help people to feel that they're a part of the story and we give people a story that they can fully relate to. For me, the most interesting one is food. Like if you can change the way that people eat, then you're affecting such emotional change that everything else is just a domino beyond that. And that was what I was talking about not so eloquently right at the beginning of the podcast is that I don't think people who are trying to convince people to move to a plant-based diet should think that they have to do it all in one go. I think that the main thing they should do is get people to make one small change, even if it's only giving up one subsection of animal products, because that is the thing that they then emotionally own that then snowballs into the rest. At Aim High, um, we've been really lucky with supporters um, like University of Cambridge and Oxford and Jane Goodall and people like that. And we, we've been, fo- we originally, we, we, we focused a lot on um, kind of big public audiences. And we're still doing that as well. But increasingly, we're kind of focusing into these high impact audiences. So before the Olympics, we taught um, Team GB before they went off to Tokyo. And we're about to train all the BBC Sports presenters, because therein lies the enormous audience. We've also been working with the UK Parliament, because it's part of our strategy of speaking directly to power, because we need to see significant shifts in opinion there. And so that's been quite interesting where we've managed to actually change the minds of people on all sides of the political spectrum, <laughs> multidimensionalness. And then we're also, we're starting to increasingly train big organizations like uh, Unilever and Sky are two that we've, that we are going to do some training for. And the nice thing about these is that we very much just deliver what we need to deliver. We don't have a situation where they're saying, oh, you must change it to this because therefore it will fit with company policy. It's just like, no, we're going to deliver what needs to be taught. And we're also now in the midst of mobilizing a kind of global network of young change makers all over the world with our friends at Youthtopia to culturally and linguistically translate this work all around the world. And so we just launched that to about 300,000 students in China. Um, wow. And now we're starting to work increasingly with indigenous communities, like with the Maori community in New Zealand, where it, it's really it's really important to us to do cultural translations instead of just linguistic ones. And so, because then we can learn reflexively and improve the communication for people all over the world. We at Aim High Earth, we really want to be seen as the activators, like taking people from outside the echo chamber across generations and cultures and delivering deep understanding and inspiration and motivation and then kind of pushing them towards these kind of communities like like plant-based news that already exist where there is already an amazing home for people and so we we're like that first port of call that helps to bring people in from from outside it's something that myself as a scientist i kind of like i i understood the crisis for ages but i wasn't really activated i've been on that journey of activation and so have so have the whole team and now we're going hell for leather doing this with increasingly huge numbers of people because we know how to take people on this journey and we couldn't be doing it without people like yourself Robbie so thank you so much for helping us to make this a reality
Well, thank you for creating such a wonderful platform. I've personally been on some of your courses and I loved them. They were very fun and engaging. And yeah, it was great to be able to sort of do something like that outside of work, which can sometimes feel a bit like a treadmill, even though I love my job and I love what we do. I'm very passionate and, you know, it's, it, I live it, breathe it, sleep it, eat it. It's, it's my life. Um, it's nice to sort of step aside and dive into some education, really, because I think, you know, there's so much to learn. And as you've alluded to, there is so much to this wonderful mechanism that is planet Earth. It's a living, breathing system. And I just, you know, again, to go back to what you said about the way that you communicate, the core of all of this is effective communication and the way we communicate our ideas, our data, and the problem is really this is the source, uh, is, is the answer to the problem, right? We could all be standing on rooftops screaming and shouting at people, but we just know from, you know, many decades or centuries of social justice that that does not work. Violence has, you know, has been used in ways like with the suffragettes to sort of push the narrative, get people to listen. You know, it had to be used in some cases, I guess, because, you know, no one would listen, but is a violence really the answer? I don't think so. The likes of sort of uh, Extinction Rebellion, Animal Rebellion, you know, are using direct action more kind of aggressive forms of trying to get the conversation on the agenda. But my personal belief is that we need to use the power of technology and psychology and education and art and music and storytelling to get through to people because ultimately what happens is the heart changes. You know, as a Buddhist, I be genuinely believe we change hearts and minds by drawing people in, by calling people in rather than calling people out. That isn't how we're going to change the world. We genuinely, and I'm not, that's not a, that's not a sort of cliche. I really believe that. I really believe that if we connect with people heart to heart, person to person, you know, friendship, meeting people where they're at, that's what's going to change people. And, and that's ultimately what, what I see in AIM High. Moving the conversation on to misinformation, you've described it as a virus. It's, it's a parasite that exists in a digital form. Um, I often see it as something that sort of is very insidious and it spreads. There's misinformation, which is often incorrect information spread by people accidentally. And then there's disinformation, which is purposefully created by, say, oil companies or, you know, giant corporates who want to sway the conversation. But this stuff, which in a 2017 uh, study by Twitter showed that misinformation or false information spread six times faster than true information. That was popularized by the Netflix TV, TV show film, uh, The Social Dilemma, which was fascinating. And this sort of really showed like how, you know, this living, breathing system of misinformation or disinformation spread so viciously. Uh, and you mentioned to me earlier about how it can be modeled as a virus, which I thought was fascinating, but I'd love to hear a bit about like the problem of misinformation, what's been your experience with it, and what this idea of misinformation is as a virus. We are unfortunately increasingly entering the misinformation age, and I think that if anyone wants to understand the root causes behind that, then they should pick up um, Shazana Zubov's book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's really dense because she's a very intelligent lady um, who writes in, in very very thick wording. And so if you struggle to get through it, I'd recommend reading chapters one and the final chapter because that gives a good good kind of summary of the whole. And, and I think it's something that's so important for people to know that I would encourage you to do that and don't feel self-conscious about having done so. Go just, just read those two chapters if you want to understand a bit. We are increasingly entering an age where this is going to become a problem. I think it was um, uh, Steve Bannon who said that nowadays the best kind of censorship isn't removing information. It's about adding excessive information so that no one can find the truth. Actually, I don't know if I'm even mm -hmm. attributing that quote to him. I just think that he's the person who's causing all these kinds of problems. So right. maybe it's him who's, who said that. What you said about it being a living, breathing 
system is, is the right way to think about it. You know, we've all seen now very clearly how viruses spread and evolve and mutate. And I think that um, a lot of people in this community will be very aware of the fact that we make the viruses ourselves. They are engineered from the biological system that we belong to. Most of them are made by humans ourselves accidentally in our cells when they just happen to create something that isn't quite ideal. But also when they spread from other animals due to our unhealthily close relationship with other um, animals on Earth, they often tend to be a lot worse because you know, a virus that might cause an only mild infection in a cow manages to jump the species gap to a human and it's going to cause, and it might be very confused and cause a very, very bad um, disease. And we can see that many of the worst diseases that we know of in the world have, have jumped the species gap from cows. Of course, again, something that people are very aware of in this, in, in this community is the idea that with so many tens of billions of, of farm animals on earth, we are all kept in close quarters. We are creating the perfect way of, of generating more, more viruses for ourselves. What I think we need to increasingly think of with information on the internet is that because we have now created a social network that interconnects everyone, that social network is a living body. It's an extension of our, our own biology. And within that, it has the same benefits and the same problems. And so when someone comes up with an idea that has the right compellingness to it and the right ease of retransmission, even if it's not a true idea, it will then spread, as we've seen on the internet, just like a virus does. And as other people discover it, some people will have the right kind of personal immune system where they'll be like, no, this is false, I'm ignoring this. But it might still spread enough. And then as other people get hold of it who really catch on to it, they think, oh, well, actually, this matches up with this idea. And a thousand people add new ideas to it. And of those, 10 of those ideas are really compelling for people. And so those ones then catch on and eventually you get this other factor coming in. So as well as your compellingness and ease of retransmission, you also have your available depth where the theory of misinformation on the internet goes very, very deep. So I spent a lot of time a few years ago delving into the New World Order conspiracy theories. I wanted to see what is it that, that people are, are looking at here. And the depth of those things is, is immense. You can spend your entire life researching these things and they're very compelling and they transmit very, very easily. And this is a truth of the modern age because the ultimate mechanism that underlies the whole problem is that the social media organizations or, or companies, instead of optimizing as they could do with their powerful algorithms, instead of optimizing for quality content that will enrich the human race, they optimize for holding our attention. Anyone who has social media will know that every year that goes by, it gets more addictive. And you don't know how, but somehow it is. And somehow it draws you in more and more every year that passes as the algorithms get even cleverer. And as long as it's optimized to hold our attention, then we're all part of this communication system that is spreading misinformation. And in terms of finding the solution, it's a difficult one because, you know, the classic argument is, well, people should be allowed to speak freely. And, and I think that is, that is a fundamental tenet of, of democracy is that people should be able to, to speak freely. But at the same time, just like a living body deals with a virus with an immune system, we need a stronger immune system online. There needs to be a much, much more sophisticated system or, or multiple systems in place that find and destroy misinformation. Because at the moment, we are like a poorly evolved 
being that's only just like crawled out of the primordial ooze and we just haven't got a proper immune system in our, in our social media yet and that's why all these fictions spread like spread like wildfire what do you say to people that say no that censorship i'm just sharing the other side of the conversation that if you shut me down and delete my links and ban my profile you're just censoring me some things on social media have started to move in the right direction where again if we look to biology what does biology do it labels those threats as a threat that's what one part of the immune system does and then another part destroys it so maybe it's the case that it's more important to label these things as incorrect and maybe that maybe that's the most compelling thing and then maybe if it gets copied repeatedly then the copies are the things that are destroyed but maybe i know that the body doesn't quite do this but maybe there's a reason to keep a copy of that original threat and so let's not censor it. Let's leave it on the internet. But it's in this database that we have of all the previous threats that we've encountered to, to truth and information. And so let, let's keep that here. I, I also completely appreciate how if we build a mechanism like this, it could easily be hijacked by an, author an authoritarian government to turn things in a very negative direction. But like any technology, it can either be used for a, a good thing or, or a bad mm. thing. But certainly the situation that we're in at the moment is as don't look up really perfectly illustrated it's not a situation that's going to end well if we continue to allow misinformation to be so rampant and if it continues to be so impossible for scientists and those communicating the science to get the simple messages out to people in stories that people will resonate with mm, absolutely i think going back to what you said earlier about science communicators there must be more science communicators out there people who have the ability, like yourself, to speak on camera in a charismatic, compelling and creative way and be master communicators, because without that, the messages are not getting through. You know, I think that's one of the benefits of the way Greta has managed to succeed in what she's done is that she being probably possibly being having Asperger's is there's the filters of sort of, of self-awareness or the insecurities are just not there. So she's very, she's able to speak her truth and speak with clarity and be very like resolute about what she cares about without fear of backlash. This is not about some expensive, politically correct green act of bunny hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Most neurotypical people probably are hardwired or are often overwhelmed with these sort of debilitating kind of fears and uh, self-deprecating concerns. A lot of very well-educated people suffer with the imposter syndrome. They don't feel worthy to be speaking with authority in front of cameras, in front of the public. And I feel like this has been the problem for decades, that a lot of these very talented people who have these incredible skills are terrified to stand up and speak and obviously don't look up. The doctor in there, the scientist in there, he's a classic case of that. So I'm really you know, hoping that we can see a world where there are more passionate and creative science communicators such as yourself. But... Moving on a bit into more broader subjects, I noticed that you have a, an interest in sort of sentience and talking about consciousness and pan-consciousness. One of the biggest struggles as an educator and communicator myself is trying to get people to understand that animals are sentient like us and that sentience and awareness of the world around us is something that is not just the privilege of human beings. Again, there's a sort of issue of education there, but this is a very broad subject, obviously. And so I'm not going to, we could talk for three hours about sentience, but there is the sentience of human beings. There's the sentience of animals. There's the sentience and awareness, you could say, not sentience, but the awareness or the consciousness of nature. 
and that there's a sort of Gaia consciousness that a lot of people talk about how like light, like Earth is a living, breathing system and that we are obviously like a, an organism within it, but have kind of disconnected ourselves. I guess my, my question is really like, how far can we go into sentience when it comes to education and talking to people? Because obviously sentience is this very abstract thing, but I feel like there's a lot that could be said about how we can awaken people's understanding to the beauty of animals and the beauty of nature with, with sentience, with awareness that the, that the living world that we exist within is alive like us. But what's been your experience of this subject? Because I'd love to hear more about like what your thoughts are on, on, on the educational aspect of sentience. Philip Pullman's books, the, the Northern Light series, are such a beautiful window in to this kind of thinking that portrays the universe as this kind of, almost this battle between sentience and consciousness and the forces that seek to repress it and close it down and, and isolate it from, from one another. To anyone who hasn't read the Philip Pullman's books, I'd, I'd really recommend it. But for me, this thinking has come from a lot of different directions. I was studying this, um, honestly, Robbie, if it wasn't for there being a massive climate nature crisis, I would be studying cosmology because I love cosmology. Wow. And that's what I really want to do. For the listeners, what is the definition of cosmology? So cosmology is the study of, of the whole cosmos, the whole universe, all, all, wow. all that is. But I, I, uh, that's, what, that's what I really want to do. And I, I did this um, course at Princeton in the, in the, in the spring, just, just gone, and early summer. And a lot of it was about kind of alternate theories of the universe. And some of them really, really resonated with me and really fit with a lot of the thinking that I've been having about cosmology by, by myself. And one of the key ideas for me is that we, we like to think of things from the bottom up. We like to think of the universe as being made from small particles and then we build it up into a big grand universe. But actually, um, in my view, it makes much more sense to think of it the other way around. The universe is, is a single whole that then subdivides into smaller and smaller pieces as, as the detail forms within it. And for me, I started realizing the overlap between that and the idea of consciousness. And this came from John Lloyd, who made the QI program. Someone introduced me to him the other day, and I had the most amazing conversation with him, where we spoke the whole time about consciousness. And he was encouraging me to think about this idea of pan-consciousness, and there being one single consciousness that we're all then subdivisions of. And it suddenly mm. matched so perfectly for me with the ideas that I've been having about the universe as a whole, that we are individual manifestations of, of consciousness and that by causing damage or pain to other parts of consciousness, we're actually just damaging our overall whole, our overall self. It's also, very Buddhist. Also, yeah, it sounds like it, doesn't it? I also met this amazing academic called Hedda, who's Norwegian. I met her a few years ago and she, she was really into the idea that particles themselves have consciousness as well. And it, I found I didn't like it at all when I heard it at first. But the more I've thought about it, the more compelling it feels like it is to me. But going back to your, your asking about consciousness with regards to how we can convince other people that other living things are conscious, it's just crazy, isn't it? It's crazy that other people can't see it. And, and it's, it's, it's sad because it's, because it's so obvious that other living things have a consciousness. And it's something that I think has only been forgotten in recent years. I think in the, in the long history of humanity, I, I think for most of the history of humanity, we've probably understood that other living things are, are just as conscious as we are. And it's only in the last little bit of, of human history of the last like, couple of thousand years where we started to move away from that idea. You know, even the ancient Egyptians were so sure that the plants were conscious with their ability to see, like the gods saw through the plants, through the consciousness of the plants. And that's why plants were all over the place because they were watching people. It's a very sad thing that it's such a struggle to 
convince people of this fundamental truth. I, I feel like we need to have a part two with you on consciousness specifically, because I'm just as excited and passionate to pick your brain on the subject. And one of my teenage mentors, you could say, not in physical form, which is a bit strange to say, is a character called Seth. He describes himself as an, and now we're going to go a bit woo-woo, so stick with me. <laughs> he described himself as a personality no longer focused in physical form. And he allegedly, according to the books, uh, spoke through a lady called Jane Roberts in the, in the 1950s. Uh, she was just a teacher and she began having these dreams where this educator a uh, lecturer came to her and spoke to her on the nature of consciousness in great depth and with great detail. Uh, everything from what is matter to why are we here to how does the actual universe come together? Uh, and his idea or his sort of, you know, his teachings or concepts was that the physical universe is simply a reflection of, of consciousness's desire to experience itself. And that each one of us is, as you say, a piece of a whole. So he talked about this metaphor of a mirror. Consciousness is like a huge mirror. And if you shattered the mirror into a thousand pieces, each one of us are a piece of that mirror. And when you looked into that mirror, you would see yourself in all those pieces in each shard. But each person that looked in that mirror would see a different person. But ultimately, it is all part of the whole. And Seth's teachings really like expanded my mind as a teenager and in my, into my early 20s, where I really started to think about how the universe wasn't really what it might appear to be. And then obviously, I went to learn more about science and quantum particles and how atoms are 99.999% empty space. And my mind began to sort of really like take all these really unusual twists and turns about what we are as a species. And if you are listening and you do want to learn more about Seth, please do check out Seth Speaks by Jane Roberts. There's about 12 books uh, that he wrote with Jane. He, in quotes, worked with Jane over a sort of 15, 20 year period. And my favorite one is Seth Speaks, The Adventures in Consciousness. And it's such a fascinating idea to think about the fact that we, and it's a bit like what The Matrix alludes to, you know, the film The Matrix and how we as individuals are not really here, you could say in quotes. We are a projection into a, a framework that brings physical matter into reality through consciousness. Consciousness creates form, not the other way around. Consciousness gives birth to form. Um, and that we as individuals through existing, that we as humans, humans, but we as conscious beings, we exist and we observe and through observation, the holodeck, if you're into Star Trek, if you've heard of that, start, the, the holodeck, the, the three-dimensional world gives cohesion and reality to physical existence. But by being here, by, by you and me seeing each other and seeing the computer and all of that, we're bringing reality into existence because without us, without a consciousness, reality doesn't exist. It's not here. And that's, you know, that's a wild woo-woo tangent, but it's a really fascinating concept when you think about like what we are as individuals. And like Seth often says, our consciousness is not locked in our heads. It doesn't sit in our brains that our consciousness is who it is part of who we are rather than sort of something that we own. What if all form had an element of consciousness rather than consciousness creating form? That's one question I was thinking about. One of the key things I'm interested in is what you talk about a lot, which is reaching beyond the echo chamber. 
Now, mm -hmm. it's very easy, especially with social media and the way algorithms work is to create echo chambers. They are designed to create echo chambers because what they do is, is they show people content they want to see. They don't create a space where I think people are often challenged in, in the ways we need people to be challenged. Um, and so often when we rely on social networks to disseminate media, it can be a real challenge to get outside of an echo chamber. I just would love to understand how it is that you guys are reaching beyond the echo chamber. What is it that you're doing as an organization to facilitate this? If you're fighting an AI robot, and the AI robot has spent all of its time optimizing to be able to fight you, then what's the best way to defeat it? The best way to defeat it is to be quite random in your behavior, because you'll present a kind of behavior that the AI doesn't know how to deal with because it hasn't seen before. And I know that seems like quite a tangential way to answer your question, but I feel that we are living in a world that is being actively optimized along very narrow dimensions everywhere you look, all the way from economies being um, optimized only along kind of GDP and profit, which is a crazy thing to be doing. It's crazy to only optimize an economy based on the amount of things being produced and not to consider the amount that's being lost simultaneously. And we see this in the social networks where things are optimized along these very narrow dimensions of how long can we hold people's attention for, foregoing all the veracity and, and quality that we actually need on those things, considering they, they consume so much of people's attention because they've optimized to hold people's attention. And so I think that if you're trying to reach outside the echo chamber, then it's actually a little bit maybe counterintuitive to say so, but you shouldn't focus too much on any given group necessarily outside of the echo chamber as part of your core strategy. I think that, uh, that within projects, you can focus on individual communities, and I think you, you have to do that. But I also think that you have to consider yourself like an ecosystem of your own and also part of an overall ecosystem and accept that that will result in you doing kind of a few different things simultaneously in order to make yourself quite diverse. So the reason I say this is because for me, I, I started out doing science presenting across loads of different topics. And I know that I built a very diverse audience because I was basically just, just focused on things that really triggered people's curiosity. Like how do you build a star in a box? Like how do you travel faster than the speed of light? Like how did, how did life actually begin? And like, what's that got to do with soap and things like that? And, and that brought in a lot of people from all kinds of different backgrounds because whilst that isn't enough to bring in everyone in the world, it, it's, it's certainly curiosity about interesting questions is something that we all have in common. And it meant that when I started putting on to my kind of um, platforms and the things that I had followers on, stuff that was a lot more environmentally focused, I had so many arguments on them from really early on. And that was, for me, quite a victory because it showed me that I'd, I'd um, reached a very broad range of people and that they weren't necessarily all in agreement about the things that I was saying. And so at first I was a bit troubled by it. And then I realized that actually that was a bit of a, a success in terms of having built an ecosystem that was that went beyond the echo chamber. So there's that. Then going back to the idea of projects that do focus on specific audiences, we do need to get a lot better at spending our time thinking about how we can reach uh, communities um, in different cultures and communities of people who who spend their time engaged with other types of with, with other types of things and i think it's really difficult because often for smaller organizations you you start out and you kind of have to go with where your natural supporters are in order to build to build the following and to build the strength that will allow you to to do the more interesting and impactful 
things. And ultimately, you know, you go to a funder and, and most of them, not to say that funders aren't, aren't smart people, because of course, of course, they, they, they very often are, but they obviously have all their own pressures in their lives and all their own things that they're doing. And they, they don't necessarily know what a good audience is. Like an audience can, can appear enormous, but is it necessarily reaching, reaching people to whom it's going to have, for whom it will have an impact? But I think when you're building something, you have to start with, let's just build as big an audience as we can. And then once you've got that support, then you can start kind of moving into different spaces because it's a lot harder work. It's, it's going to be such hard work by if you're moving into spaces where, where people will have a lot more friction against the message that you're pushing. I also think we do need to remember that we don't really need to be focused too much on the people who aren't necessarily going to come along with the, with, with the messaging that we're giving anyway. We, what we need to focus on are the much bigger chunk of people who kind of already resonate with the message a little bit, but aren't really quite activated. And the people who are a little bit indifferent, but actually open to learning. That's generally the bulk of the population. And so if we can get those people interested, then we actually don't need to worry too much about the people who are the active opponents to, to, the, to the movement or the, or the message that's trying to be got across. Mm. You, you mentioned when we spoke previously about the number of people that you're reaching through your courses and the work that you're doing. But when you look on your social media, you don't you're not as prolific on your social media. Is that on purpose? Is it just a matter of resourcing or you guys avoiding kind of spending a lot of time and resources on social content? Or, or is it that you are working behind the scenes more with organizations and, and a more person to person approach? You know, how are you sort of structuring your resourcing and your time in this way? There is a limited amount of time and resources to spend on things. We have felt that there are already a lot of organizations that are in the kind of social media space that are good at putting out great information. We like contributing to that. And so every now and then we'll put out some, some stuff and we like that that builds, helps us to build a community. But at the same time, we are finding that we're having a much greater positive impact on, on the overall mission of creating a load of nature first thinkers who will actually kind of lead i like that nature first thinkers yes that's um I mean, some people have told us off for that though as being like too abstract but for me that feels like yeah. the most fundamental thing of all like, of course we should be getting people to think of nature first like that that if we get that done that's basically the job done but anyway no we've we've found that we're, we're having a lot more impact by working directly with organizations so for example we We've been working with the UK Houses of Parliament, where we've been able to directly speak to, to lawmakers and and help to influence the direction that they then are able to push policy in. We've been doing work directly with sports presenters at the BBC, for example. And after one of the first sessions, I'm not sure actually whose names I'm allowed to name about this. Probably it's fine for me to name them. But anyway, just in case it's not, um, I would say the, the bit, the kind of probably the most well-known sports presenter in the UK after the first session immediately like took to Twitter and was and was um and was saying things about how how much more urgency there is than than people seem to think and, and it was a bit of a shame actually to see him saying after that that he didn't feel like his contribution was making a difference because it really does there, there is a problematic attitude at the moment wherein the fossil fuel companies have really succeeded in making people think that this crisis can only be solved by scientists and engineers and politicians when actually it's something that needs everyone like it needs the artists it needs the musicians it needs it needs everyone painting a, a picture of of the future that will actually help us to actually dream the progress that we then need to need to make we've been finding that we can have a lot more impact by working directly with some of these influential 
people uh, were working increasingly with actors, for example, um, to get the messages out through platforms that they already have and followers that they already have who often reach beyond the echo chamber. And so we're starting to think of that as more our role and starting to think of ourselves as more like a supportive organization on social media that helps other organizations to make good stuff. And in fact, one of the things that is really on my to-do list and I would love to do, I honestly would love to do it, is write some scripts for you guys to turn into into videos. Um, and I just haven't been able to make much time yet for, for, for writing things, but yeah. That sounds great. I mean, that's what we're best at is video content. You know, our, our focus is to is, is to get educate like you. And I've battled with the same conversation over the years. Like we put so much time and energy and resources into social networks. We have built an audience of, you know, 2.6 million fans across all our pages. But Facebook and Instagram control that. They control the audience. They control the, the way the information is disseminated. And that's incredibly frustrating. If I know now, what if I know what I knew now back then, I wouldn't have spent so much time on social networks I would have involved our platform in them but I would have spent a lot more time building a community of our own uh, audience you know whether it's our own app where people can register you know where they call it first party registration that's a sort of you know geeky industry term where you encourage people when they do come to your personal platform like your website to register with their name and their email and become part of the family you could say because obviously you know Mark Zuckerberg and his fellow social media platform own uh, CEOs they've created this system which is encourages people to sort of join these social media clubs where everybody is the, the party's over here come over here and content creators such as us we've poured thousands of hours of time to build these big platforms we've built the platforms we've brought the audiences and now they're charging us for it we don't get the engagement that we got when we first started because you know the platforms now have monetized attention as 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 you know from watching the social dilemma we're now paying the price so i think anyone who wants to build their own platform and starts to educate for me the most important thing you can do is to build your own lists to build your own audiences and to focus very heavily on your own databases of of supporters and influencers that you work with because i think it's the best way to go because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow you know people can change a few things on instagram and suddenly your content and your reach goes from here to here and then you're absolutely screwed and you're not reaching the people you did and you don't have an email list and you don't have your own database. So it's really important to maintain those partnerships. How do we strike a balance between shutting down you know, dangerous disinformation and then also allowing people to have freedom of speech? Where do, we, where do we draw the line and who draws the line? Okay, firstly, on vaccines, I love the Moderna and the, and the, and the BioNTech vaccines. I think they're such clever technology. A friend of mine knows knows the people who, who who invented each of them, and I've kind of heard quite a lot about like the personal journeys of how those things have been created and the technology that they're based on. And it's so clever. It's so clever. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how primitive a society we live in and how much we're living in the dark ages. But those those two vaccines are such a beautiful piece of technology in terms of how how they've been designed and so clever in, in the way that they can be updated to face face new threats. And I think for me, those those two, well, yeah, they use very similar technology and it really represents something that feels hopeful um, for humanity and its ability to get rid of diseases. But also in some ways you need the threat of disease to get people to realize that we need to stop animal farming on a, on a huge scale. So there's, there's like balance, but disease, we generally agree is, is a bad thing. How do we draw the line and who draws the line? Okay, so I think the answer to this one, for me, is feels quite intuitive and, and obvious. And maybe that's me being naive. But for me, if, if you think of the system as a biological system, then you just need to look at the human body in general and see how it deals with viruses. 
So rather than having a system wherein there's a kind of top-down control that instantly just destroys all traces of the information, that's not how our body would deal with it. Instead, our body would basically take copies of the information that we need and put them in a like memory cell storage so that we never lose track of what that piece, what that virus or that or that bacteria or whatever it was, was. So I think that with misinformation online, censoring things entirely is not a good thing. Whereas if you instead take an approach of very clearly labeling something that's been identified as misinformation and having like almost like a gallery, like an online gallery of like, here, here's all the bits of misinformation and here's why they're misinformation. This is why I think the website Snopes is so important because it, it, already, it already does that to quite a high standard. I've certainly seen a lot of good things on that, on that website. But what happens when people don't trust Snopes when you see you know, climate change, climate crisis deniers or anti-vaxxers saying Snopes can't be trusted, it's owned by Hillary Clinton, or there's, there's more <laughs> information, misinformation being spread about the misinformation hunters, you could say. It's just never-ending spiral. Yeah, well, of course, there will always be people who will kind of push against any organized system, just in the same way that it always happens mm. in science. There's always like some degree of chaos that's like pushing against the, the attempted organization. But I think that the more we learn from biology, the closer we'll get to a solution for that. As well as avoiding censorship entirely and allowing things to stay online, I also think that it does make sense to do, again, what the body would do, which is take control of anything that is growing rapidly and starting to starting to take over on a large scale. And I know that I, I'm not no expert on what's going on at all in this space, but I've certainly heard talk of of uh, when misinformation is spreading really rapidly and the, and the social media platforms can see that it's being repeatedly posted, that's the point at which they should step in and reduce the amount of times it's being reposted. And what that mechanism is, I don't know. Maybe it's a message that pops up saying, this has been shared multiple times. They've done it with WhatsApp. Yeah. They've done it on WhatsApp because it was particularly bad in Brazil. Uh, spreading of misinformation via WhatsApp in Brazil has been, you know, pandemic levels, you, could, you might say. Um, and so when they see a piece of information spreading rapidly via the WhatsApp, you can't send it to more than three people. Okay, so. yeah. And that's that's good because, I mean, obviously, we we have a direct um, Bella's Bella's parents are, are, are Brazilian. So we, we got stuff directly from that being sent to our own phones and um one of the ones was uh, the, the Crick Institute, where there was this guy who was talking about how the Pfizer vaccine was actually making you less less able to to fight off the virus. And I was thinking, mm. the Crick Institute, that's such a good institute. Why would they be saying this? And so I looked into it and I found like the full video that had been edited down and I got to see firsthand how these like misinformation merchants or disinformation, I guess you'd call it at this stage, had like edited it really carefully to make it look like it was saying the opposite of what it was saying. Um, and then obviously I sent, mm. I sent back to Bella's parents the, the original and they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's so compelling when it's shared around and it's terrifying. It really is. So this, but these tactics and these techniques, that these are me often these are like media trained people and we could probably have a, probably have a whole episode talking about misinformation because obviously there are people out there who have organizations who are tasked with creating disinformation purposely designed to maintain the status quo whether it's you know big oil big ag etc they're all pushing content out 
billboards, magazine ads, uh, articles, opinion pieces, microsites. There's just so much. And yeah, we don't really have time today to go into any more detail about it. But I'd like to turn the conversation a bit more to representing facts and data. We mentioned a little bit about when we first started talking about the use of water, for example. On plant-based news, we often do comparisons where we talk about the use of water. So say we often frame something in this way. We say a liter of dairy milk requires a thousand liters of water to be produced. And so what we're trying to do there is show people how choosing plant-based alternatives over the animal counterparts there's a clear discrepancy there in the volume of water that is used but i'd love to hear a little bit more about how you represent facts in this way because there's obviously you know there's obviously a best practice for doing this and how do you guys frame it so yeah water is a difficult one when i was setting up the no beef campaign and i was getting on uh loads of different scientists to support and obviously we need to go through making sure they approve all the information that it's academically sound and so on and the one thing that lots of them brought up i remember i think it was peter singer who pushed back the most was on the water stats and in the end the conclusion was let's just not really talk about water very much it actually snuck its way into the main video which is still online and that's the one that had the huge number of views but for the most part it's not really been a key part it, hadn't, it didn't form a key part of the messaging from then on. The reason is not that water isn't important. Of, co- of course it is, and there, there's major problems going on with water in the world. But water's a funny one. There's lots of kind of unexpected things to do with it. Like, for example, I think the amount of surface freshwater in the world has been going up quite a lot over the last few few years. A friend of mine's dad works on like mapping for the for the EU. And he said that actually freshwater reserves have been have been climbing. And the reason for that, I think, is actually to do with a lot of damming and, and reservoirs and things, which obviously isn't necessarily that healthy a thing to be doing for the world because we need free flowing rivers so that we can have interconnected ecosystems. You can't necessarily say that water is running out everywhere because in a lot of places, it's, there's a lot of water being stored. You can certainly say that water is running out in a really problematic way when you look at like Jakarta, for example, where like water is being pulled out from under the ground and the whole city is, is sinking and look at Iran where the underground, where the aquifers are being emptied and it's, it's heading towards an impending disaster that's, that's really, really problematic. But water is, for the most part, is very cyclic. And as, as long as we don't completely mess up the biological systems of the world, it will keep going round and round and, and the rain will keep falling. And, and especially with, with cows, like certainly we know that cows are bad. For the planet, there's all they take up so much land because they're so inefficient with the food that they eat. They're releasing methane and driving all this deforestation and, and so on. But at the same time, the argument to do with water is one that often the opponents to that movement to move away from farming cows often pounce upon, and they say, "Well, actually, we shouldn't. Re- you know, the water thing is silly," and they use that to, to turn people against what I would say is the positive movement of moving away from from beef because. A lot of the water stats are from often from quite old papers where they are, you know, they're counting all the rain that's falling on the falling on the field and they're saying, well, that's water use. The thing is, the rain's going to fall anyway. So it's less about the fact that the water is being used for the cows because the water is still going into an ecosystem that might be a healthy ecosystem. I worry that I'm answering this in a way that's a bit too academic, actually, (laughs) rather just getting straight to the point. (laughs) But basically, the point is, is that like, we should be careful of the water arguments, because we should be aware that the other side, and I don't, I I don't like to use the phrase other side, but let's, let's do it in this case, the other side are using those same stats to undermine 
the movement towards a plant-based diet. Mm. And so that's why I think that it's something we should be very wary of, unless it's super clear that this is water coming from aquifers that actively is resulting in people not being able to drink or, or not being able to to grow other kinds of food that they could do more efficiently with the land. There was a, an article in The Guardian recently about Oatly and how Oatly's ads uh, have been banned for misleading green claims. I don't know if you had a chance to read it yet. So so the Advertising Standards Authority, the ASA, which is an organization based in the UK, is kind of the guardian of advertising of what you can and cannot say. And of course, Oatly, you know, if anyone who hasn't heard of Oatly, where have you been hiding? <laughs> Oatly is a oat milk company. They've seen a stratospheric rise uh, to popularity across the world and um, they often sort of talk about oats being the most eco-friendly type of plant milk and that you know you're saving the planet by switching to a plant-based diet and the ASA has shut down their advertising they had 109 complaints from the public regarding their campaign now I wonder who those people were you know Joseph Poor in the in the Oxford study there's been so many studies that have talked about how switching to a plant-based diet can have a dramatic effect on a person's carbon footprint yet I keep seeing the mainstream media or from from governmental organizations this pushback all the time about how animal agriculture isn't as bad. But on the other side of the conversation, or the other side, as you said, we're told that animal agriculture is a leading driver for climate breakdown, that it's uh, more polluting than all transport combined. As someone involved in this space, what is the truth? Or at least what when you say truth, that's an interesting question. But what, <laughs> as far as your experience, if animal agriculture really is as bad as we think it is, why isn't it more on the agenda? It was hardly spoken about at COP26. You know, a lot of these organizations who are pushing the narrative are being silenced or being told to stop peddling misinformation. But yet there are what I feel legitimate studies supporting this. But what are you, what is your understanding of it? I think we have to remember that the fossil fuel companies kind of have like a playbook of what of what they're working through in order to slow down action on the climate crisis. And there's a similar thing with with the agriculture industry as well and all kinds of industries that are interconnected with with government. And I think that very much the messaging has been so focused on emissions and, and carbon accounting and things like that, that it's then easy for, for animal farming to like slip under the radar as not necessarily being the highest priority that we should look at. And I think that there are certainly insidious elements to that, where there are people trying to make the conversation move slower on purpose. But then there are also people who are just misinformed and just don't realize how bad animal agriculture is. So the classic thing that often comes up is, is methane. How much more powerful a greenhouse gas is methane compared to carbon dioxide? So yeah, methane, methane is about 90 times stronger than 90. CO2 when measured over 20 years. But it's right. only 30 times stronger when measured over 100 years. So it's a third as strong when you measure over 100 years, which is a huge difference. Obviously, in my mind, like 20 years and 100 years are actually both quite close. To, and, and, and in many ways, we should also be thinking a lot about the 20 year period because this crisis is happening now and we need to turn it around now. And so anything that's a really powerful greenhouse gas that's being emitted now, we need to, we need to deal with. But because there's such a major discrepancy between the 30 times stronger or 90 times stronger, it's so easy for different actors in this debate to pick the number that they want to choose. So inevitably, the agricultural industries are going to choose the, one, the numbers that make methane look less bad in order to try and divert attention away from themselves. And that's why you always get these really constantly confusing numbers about how much does agriculture actually contribute to the problem. And some people give a really huge number and some people give a really small number because they're just playing with, often with the, with the methane figures in order to distort 
the debate. Yeah, the main message that we try to get across to people is that what really matters at the basis of this whole global crisis is the question, what is the impact on nature? That's what we should ask about absolutely everything. That's why the climate crisis is bad. It's bad because of the destruction that it is that it is creating for nature. Because we've somehow the 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 kind of insidious forces in the world that are trying to <laughs> trying to make things um, more profitable but ultimately more destructive. These people have, have really uh, are encouraging the conversation to be more about carbon accounting because it's very abstract. It's very far away. But actually, people switch exactly. Off to it. But actually, what really matters is 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 the question about about nature and animal agriculture um, on on a large scale. Is it bad? Of course it is because it's so destructive to nature. If you look at the habitable land that exists on the planet, so all the land that's that's reasonable to live on, over fifty percent of it is farms. That's insane. That's mm. totally insane. Like, where's the space for nature? And because we are, as as I would like to think, people listening to this podcast would would, would already kind of know and feel like we we're very much a part of nature. The environment is not something separate to us. We are part of the environment, and so damage to nature is 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 damage to ourselves. And I think that we should all work very hard to reframe this whole conversation to be about nature, because that makes the animal farming part of it completely undeniable. And it totally links together all the crises into one. And the more that we frame it just in terms of emissions, I think the more that we will turn people off from thinking that it's something they can do anything about, disconnect people from it, and ultimately slow down any of the solutions. But it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because obviously animal agriculture is directly linked to behavior what people want to eat, which is linked to culture, which is deeply ingrained in our psyche as human beings. Go through the comments of any plant-based or vegan-related content in the mainstream, and you'll see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people saying, but bacon though, but beef though, I'm gonna keep eating my steak, you know, you know, screw you greenies, screw you green, you know, liberals, you liberal, left-wing liberal crybabies with your tree-hugging, bunny-hugging uh, BS. You know, there's especially in the US, there's been this sort of polarization of people that are who have kind of created a, an argument, and I and I do believe social media has has facilitated this, where you have the right wing types, you know, the left wing types, or left and right wing conservatism and liberalism, where it seems to be caring about the planet and caring about our future is a liberal thing, and then in on the on the right hand side, you know, being sort of focused on maintaining the status quo and and preserving. Um, the integrity of the individual and the, cho- the ability to choose and eat and live and carry a gun it seems to be over here. Obviously, we spoke before about not wanting to, we shouldn't be having left-wing and right-wing conversations about the planet. We all live on the same planet. It shouldn't be a left-wing or right-wing thing. How do you think this has happened? How do you, th- it's particularly, this is particularly bad in the US, but how has it happened that being a liberal is being caring about the planet and the future of our society and our species, but yet right-wing conservatism seems to be, doesn't seem to care about it, wants to shut down any conversations to do with protecting our future. I think we all feel the same things beneath all of this. Everyone wants freedom and good communities and so on. And I think that obviously part of the whole design of politics becoming corrupted in terms of the flow of information is that words get freighted with so many meanings 
like mm. the idea of, of left wing and right wing, like these things are so, these, are, these words are so evocative for people. They, they have so many meanings attached to them and they're so complicated and so different as well. Whereas the words free, the word freedom generally means the same thing to, to most people. And I think that that's something that we, the best way to, to push against this problem is, is to focus on that idea on, on freedom. And this is why I was so frustrated with the no beef campaign that we got pushed back by all the funders. And I personally, I felt very strongly that they were really wrong. And I was very upset about it at the time. And I still feel very strongly that they were wrong in pushing back funding no beef as a, as a thing that should be supported because the core of the argument I think from from often from right-wing actors is the idea that veganism is is taking our freedom away it's like it's taking away the choices to, to eat the things that we want to we want to eat there's these people who are telling us what we want to eat and so on it's such an evocative narrative for people that there are these people who are taking away what, what they're able to do and that's why I think it's so important to have these things like like the No Beef campaign, and I hope there'll be others like it, that encourage people to just take the first step. Because actually the first step is is the most important one of all. When we were asking people to give up beef, we, we were just saying like, here's a really easy thing that you can own, um, that you can make your own, that will make a really positive difference to the planet. Keep the rest of the, your diet just the same as it is. We're not bothered about that. Just just give up beef and that, that'll be a good a good start. And lo and behold, years on, people are completely transforming the way the way that they eat. And it's become this snowball that because they've, they've taken that first initial step, they've actually started to change. And they never felt like their freedom was being taken away because it was a personal choice that was made. Mm. I mean, it was partly a personal choice, partly, I guess, a microbiome adjusting to the new diet and actually telling your brain to eat more vegetables because they're just more delicious once you get that microbiome going on. Of, of all the sort of comments and feedback I've had on this podcast, and you know, 99% of it is positive. I did get one comment from uh, a conservative in the US who said, don't forget that they're also, you know, right wing conservatives who listen to your podcast, they're right wing conservatives who are vegan. And when talking about people in a particular particular way, we have to be very mindful about how we address. So when, you know, when I talk about liberals and conservatives, you know, I'm not saying that all liberals are good people and conservatives are bad. That's not true at all. There's a lot of bad actors, as you say, on both sides of the conversation, and that we need to have nuance when it comes to having the conversation about political affiliation. And veganism isn't necessarily a left wing liberal idea, but it does lean more towards the idea of liberalism, which is, you know, about trying to be more conscientious and thoughtful about our impact on the planet. You know, I feel like being a liberal is about being open to new ideas, being open to change, whereas conservatism to me is about maintaining the status quo, keeping things the same and maintaining a framework of society and power structures and powerarchy between people and organizations. Because obviously I feel like conservatism is about a fear of change and liberalism is about embracing it. it can be very easy to demonize conservative conservatives and liberals can be very, can demonize conservatives and sort of paint everyone with the same brush. And that's very important not to do that because we've got to sit down at a table with people and have discussions and talk about the environment, talk about politics, talk about veganism and animal rights and have open, frank conversations with people and not about winning them over, but sharing ideas and and and, and finding sh- you know common ground because obviously we're never going to change anything if we can't find common ground with people, if we can't meet in the middle and work our way backwards it's a whole conversation about that and yeah you, yeah you have a yeah I, I just wanted to add i remembered what i was i was going to say um about freedom mm. how i think that ultimately that's an underlying driver for both of those different kind of you you, you split people up into into liberals and conservatives and um 
And I think that maybe if there is a bit of a difference, maybe it's that more liberal people might be thinking about freedom in a slightly different kind of way, like freedom from, in this case, mm. since you're associating veganism more, more with that kind of group of people, maybe it's freedom to live on a planet that isn't totally ruined um, in the coming years. Whereas mm -hmm. maybe um, for people who aren't necessarily so open to the idea of, of veganism, it's, it's more about an immediate sense of freedom of like, what, what is it that I get, I get to do with my life? But I was going to say that I, I tend to avoid as much as possible splitting people into, into groups of, of, of liberals and, and conservatives, because I, I, I don't think it's very helpful for, for the work that we're trying to do to split people into these groups, because we immediately create different parties, a, a division. Yeah. And I think that mm. certainly if you look at this from, again, from a bit of a biological standpoint, it's, it's important for us to have a bit of balance between more, some more conservative tendencies and some more liberal tendencies, because this is how, just in the way that a biological system balances itself, you need some tendencies that are creating um, more kind of uh, like change and, and doing things in different ways and other tendencies that are keeping things the same, because it's that dynamic balance that is what it means for us to, mm. to be alive. And so in that sense, I, I would certainly count myself as on the liberal end of that spectrum but that's because i feel that we live in a world that is currently very far towards the more conservative end of the spectrum i guess that there is a case in which we could live in like such in a world that's like so far over the liberal end of the spectrum maybe i would have more conservative tendency i don't know one dimensionalism within politics i feel like one of the main things that was used in this kind of like capitalism versus communism debate was this idea that that's like a one-dimensional axis and you can either be one or you can be the other. And the other. I think that we should also work really hard to represent these choices as much more multidimensional. There are so many different alternatives to a purely capitalist system or a purely communist system. There's so many different alternatives that putting them on that spectrum maybe isn't the right way mm. to go and would help people to build bridges. Mm, absolutely. But also to remember that we cannot please all of the people all of the time. And we're all just here doing our best, trying to live our lives and and get through and survive uh, on this uh, crazy earth. You know, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear a bit more about like what your future plans are for Aim High Earth. And, you know, there's a lot going on. You've got your amazing course, which we're going to be promoting on PBN. So if anyone's listening and you want to do the course, yeah, we'll obviously look out for a promo of the course on the plant based news platform. But yeah, what's it? What's in what looks in what's in your future? We've been thinking a lot about how we can have a lot more impact a lot more quickly and so we are now focusing a lot more on on influential people on sports people on 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 actors and musicians we're also focusing a lot on politicians who are at the direct levers of power and we're also focusing a little bit on people who are running businesses to try and get them to change their decisions as well and so the public courses we are very much keeping open because we, we think this information should be available to everyone. And so you'll see more, more public courses coming out where you can learn to be a highly impactful communicator and teach other people to be the same because therein lies the, that multiplicative exponential that we need in order to, to grow this movement. And we will keep doing that. But ultimately, I think from us, you're going to see more of us being very strategic with who it is that we are working with to try and maximize our, our impact. And so in that sense, there might be less publicly posted about what we're doing. Although we will also probably a lot of people have told us that we have a real duty to turn our live course into something like a TV show, like a series, 
because as we, I think we talked about before, it, is, it seems to be so effective at changing people's behavior that it would be probably quite irresponsible for us to not try and get that out to a huge number of people. So we'll probably do that as well. But in terms mm. of, yeah, what else is coming next? We're starting to work way more in, in different countries and different cultures. We're doing a lot more kind of um, linguistic and cultural translations to try and adapt this work for, for people far beyond the normal Anglosphere that this stuff often gets to. And we're trying to spend a lot of time thinking of the kinds of stories that are super compelling for people. Brilliant. Well, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig on the desert island and you're there forever, <laughs> what book, music album and uh, dish would you take with you? Ooh, is the pig trained in finding truffles? The pig's your friend, so you can you can you can uh, you can hang with okay, the pig, great, great. hunt with the not hunt, but like hunt for mushrooms with the pig. Because the pig is good at finding truffles, and you basically sort it, aren't you? you? Just eat truffles the whole time. Wait, sorry, what were the three things I was supposed to pack? I was just like, I was thinking about truffles. One music, it could be a, a music, you know. Album. Whenever I ask people this question, they're like, I don't really listen to albums anymore. I'm on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so it can be an artist. You know, what's your favorite book, and uh, what one vegan dish would you take with you on this? Uh, desert island oh okay um favorite book the baron in the trees absolute zinger by Italo calvino it's uh such a beautiful story about um a boy kind of living his whole life in nature and uh i won't give it away anyway that's great in terms of music definitely the south african band called beatenberg can i be a lover in the southern suburb i wanna run for cover I'd take all of their albums, but I'd also want to take the Enfield albums because that he's he's the he's the lead singer who's now doing his own project called Enfield. So I'm going to take both of those, even though that counts as two. I'm sorry about that, but they're they're really great. Um, I think if all was good and right in the world, they'd be one of the biggest bands in the world. But music industry is hard these days. So take that, and then um, in terms of vegan dish, could I just take a like a, an oven instead? Because I just love roasting a source of vegetables. <laughs> so I just roast everything on the island. Well, it's your island, so you'll be able to grow anything. So an oven, I've never had that before, but that's a, that's a great idea. Taking a kitchen implement rather than a dish itself. I could roast, yeah. that'd be good. Matthew, I will give you your oven and uh, send you on your desert island. But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's fascinating. I feel like we definitely need to uh, have a, another few episodes in, in, this, in this series uh, over, over the years, because obviously there's so many subjects that, that intersect your work and all your personal interests. So it's been a, a pleasure to sit yeah, down. Yeah, likewise. It's been really fun. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, food, fashion, technology, environment, animals, and everything in between. <laughs> <laughs>